Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. This week is awesome. I'm not going to lie. This is, this is a good one. What would you think about it, John? I thought it was good. I thought it was fun. It was interesting. Barry had a lot of good things to say. Ah, oh, you already threw out the I, guy's I name. I know. I slipped it there, man. You slipped. This week, we interview Dr. Barry Schwartz. He is a psychologist. You know we love them. He is the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College. He publishes a lot in the New York Times. He's been on TED Talks. He spoke at Google. He spoke at PopTech. He has written, I don't know, six books. Awesome guy, smart guy. And as I allude to in the beginning of the interview with him, I found out about him. I was reading a magazine article where they talked about choosing and choice. And I suffer from what I like to call paralysis from analysis. You get it? I got it. I'm paralyzed from the amount of analysis I do on every decision. And that's what his book talks about. It talks about maximizers, which are the people that have to make the best decision or think they have to make the best decision, and satisficers, which are people that make a decision that's good enough and just run with it. And I've always envied those people. What do you, what do you think you tend to be, Roach? Man, that's tough. Uh, I think for the most part, a maximizer 
You think? Um, yeah, especially with tech products. I was going to bring it up during the interview, but I didn't want to go on too many tangents. But I have right. an issue with, especially with buying laptops and things like that. I buy it and then know that the next one's going to be coming out in however many months. Right. And then as soon as it does, I contemplate how I can sell my old one <laughs> to buy the new one because I want to have the best. You do. And you know what's crazy is I realized one of the only areas where I don't maximize is technology. But, and I did, again, I wanted to talk to him about this too, but man, these 30 minute interviews are just tough. But I just hit you up and I say, Roach, what's the best thing to buy? And you always give me five options. And I say, no, pick one. And you pick one because it's not you buying it, it's me. And everybody wins. So I think that might be kind of a, I just came up with a solution. You just, Go to like some website that recommends stuff, take the recommendation and just run with it. You'll probably never know any better. That's yeah, that's a good idea. And I was actually gonna bring that up during the interview too, but again, didn't want to go off on these long tangents. But I wanted to make fun of you for for not wanting the best tech stuff and then crazy stuff happening to your To what? Uh, I don't know, that that Dell laptop that had every okay. single thing wrong. I'm sorry that Dell happen. laptop lasted five years and has been amazing to me. Yeah, it lasted five years if you didn't want to use it as a laptop. <laughs> as soon as you okay. unplugged it, boom. the battery the battery lasted one year. But yeah. Anyways, I think the listeners get the point here, but it's just all about choosing. He talked there's too much choice. There's there should be this middle ground. You know, it's not one decision and it's not twenty. It's like chocolate vanilla and strawberry you're gonna like one just pick one but when you have 30 or 36 or however many baskin robbins has every time you pick one you then begin to think about all the good attributes of the other flavors or the other options and it takes away from the enjoyment of the one you picked and it's just it's just a downward spiral and we talk about it in the interview but i'm so fascinated by it he goes into it more in his book which I don't know if we've mentioned yet, but it's The Paradox of Choice is the book that we kind of refer to the most in this interview. It's super interesting. So we'll turn this over to Barry here in a minute. I did want to reiterate, guys, that it is the holiday season and we need all the help we can get. We are on pace for a record month for Smart People Podcast. It's helping us out and we really appreciate it. So just make sure you go to our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Click on the banner at the top of the page, the Amazon banner, and it'll bring you to Amazon, make your purchases through there, and we get a small little kickback. Yeah, and I wanted to thank everybody who's made donations recently as well. I'm not going to list out names just so their personal info is not out there, but we really do appreciate it. It means a lot to us. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, you made my day, week, and month. Tis the season for giving. That was awesome. Really appreciate it. Make sure to head over to Facebook like our page, Smart People Podcast, and head over to iTunes, subscribe if you haven't. That helps us out a lot. And enjoy this interview with Barry. I kind of want to jump right into it. I was reading a magazine article, and somebody mentioned your name and your book, and they briefly described maximizers versus satisficers. And mm -hmm. it was a light bulb went off. I knew I had to talk to you. I knew I had to read this book because you don't, it's hard to explain how much of a maximizer I am and how difficult it makes my life. So 
first I was hoping you could kind of explain that theory to us and our listeners, and then we could kind of dive into it a little more. Sure. So the, the critical distinction is that if you're a maximizer, then only the best will do. You want the best cell phone, the best cell phone plan, the best place to go on vacation, the best job, the best house, et cetera, et cetera. And what, it's nice to have very high standards, but the problem that it creates for people, especially in the modern world, is that when there are so many options, finding the best is a total nightmare. You can't look at all the options, and so eventually you, you either you don't pick at all or you pick something, but you're convinced that if you'd looked longer, you'd have done better. A satisficer, in contrast, is looking for a good enough option, a good enough phone phone plan, vacation, job, and so on. And you can have high standards, but you don't need the best. And the, the benefit of that is that you don't need to look at every option. You just look at options until you find one that meets your standards, whatever they are, and you choose it. So it is less stressful to choose. It's less uh, defeating to choose. And what we find is that people who are uh, who we can identify as satisficers actually are more optimistic, happier about their lives, happier about themselves. They seem generally in much better psychological shape than people who are out for the best. I'm sorry you're in the latter category. Oh, me too. I, I just <laughs> – is there something that lends itself to making you more of a maximizer? I mean I kind of was always raised on the idea that, you know, the world is your oyster and you can do anything you want. And sometimes I wonder if that's kind of bad advice. Well, I think it is bad advice. Uh, and uh, parents do it, of course, only with the best interest of their kids in mind. And people who teach at institutions like the one I teach at, you know, teaching extremely talented, hardworking students, continue. We tell students, you can do everything. You can do whatever you want to do. We'll make it easy for you. And at some point, the world intervenes and says, no, you can't do everything. You can only do some things. And you've got to pick a door to walk through. And you hear all these other doors slamming shut. And it's, uh, it's really a terrifying prospect. Um, so I don't think we do people a favor by giving them the sense that everything is possible, but we don't know where this comes from. Uh, huh. I mean, there's simply no research on how this sort of standards of decision-making develop in kids. Yeah, because it seems natural the... to assume that somehow you, you know, you get it from your parents, but there are plenty of people where, you know, like one sibling will be, uh, a total satisficer and another one will be a total maximizer and they have the same parents and you just walk away scratching your head and wonder where the hell did that come from? Right. That's a good point. One thing I noticed is the people who follow in their parents' footsteps, you know, do what their dad did and then their dad did and things like that, oftentimes, in my opinion at least, seem extremely happy. And I, I joke with my dad, he's a pilot, and sometimes I just say, Dad, why didn't you just say, be a pilot? That's all you can be, that's all you're going to be. Because I'm sure I would have been happy with it. Well, you know, the problem, of course, is that when your parents tell you be a pilot, the, you can be sure that the one thing on earth you're not going to be is that. <laughs> that that's a really good point. <laughs> the trick is to find a way to communicate that without coming right out and saying it. Right. But, you know, it's an interesting question whether, and I don't know whether there is any systematic evidence, 
that um, people who in some sense follow in their parents' footsteps are more satisfied with their lives. It's quite possible. And it's not just about careers. You know, the question is, the people who live roughly in the communities where they grew up, are they happier than people who wander around, uh, you know, looking for the best, most exciting place to live? There are lots of possible avenues for research uh, that would follow up on your intuition. But uh, as far as I know, none of it has been done. I read this really interesting study a long time ago that maybe has has made my life easier. And it was about how people got to decide whether you might know it better than me, but whether they eat the same thing at a restaurant, their favorite restaurant, or they choose in advance if they sample something different every time. And in the end, it, it turned out that people that ate the same thing they know they enjoyed were happier than the people who tried something different each time. Have you ever heard of that study? I have not heard of that study, but it seems to me to be perfectly plausible. I myself, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing. Uh, first, I live in the heart of a downtown part of the city, so there are a million restaurants within a few blocks of where I live. My wife and I go to the same small number of places that we like. And when I go there, especially me, my wife is less true of, I always order the same damn things. So, <laughs> you know, people ask me, well, is this good? Is this good? Is this good? And I say, well, actually, I don't know. Yeah, see, that's the way to do it, in my well, opinion. maybe, you know, but the world is, you know, there are all these wonderful experiences out there in the world that people like me don't even try. And some of them, you know, some of them may turn out to be terrible, but some of them really might be wonderful. While we're on this this kind of subject of choices and everything, I think it was in your TED Talk that I saw one thing really, really jumped out at me, and it was about opportunity cost, the way you described opportunity cost. And I'd like you to go more into it, but I just want to make sure you cover the point about how when we know there are other options available, it's easier for us to see what would have been better in those other options, but not what would have been worse. The, one of the problems that we have in living in a world with so with so many options is that most of the decisions we make, um, especially the important ones, there are going to be multiple dimensions that matter to us, and it's extremely unlikely that we're going to find something that's the best in every way. So when you're choosing a vacation, you may have to make a trade-off between being able to you know, have, have gorgeous weather and being exposed to wonderful culture, uh, eating in great restaurants and being able to hike in mountains. There's no one place that has it all. And the problem is that when you choose a place, even if you choose the right place, you can spend your time at that place thinking about all the wonderful things that you passed up in other places. So life is trade-offs. Trade-offs are inevitable. And if you um, spend your time doing uh, one thing, thinking about all that you have traded off and the other things, you're going to end up pretty miserable with what you've chosen, even if you've chosen the right thing. And the same thing is true when it comes to choosing a job, right? There's location, there are the colleagues, there's how interesting the work itself is, uh, the opportunities for advancement, the salary. Again, it's extremely unlikely that there's going to be one job that's the best in every way. But the more jobs you consider, the more salient will be all the things that you have passed up in the jobs you didn't take. Now, nowadays, with jobs so hard to come by, people probably feel lucky to have any job. 
but you know things weren't that way five years ago, uh, and presumably someday uh, it, things will go back to being uh, uh, somewhat less precarious, and people will find themselves with uh, choices among jobs. And we found we did a study of college seniors looking for jobs. And we found that maximizers got better jobs than satisficers did, and they felt worse. Wow, that's that's pretty interesting. And I, I wanted to step along those lines, too, and just and ask you, you know, one of the things that you say for making good decisions is to identify your goal or goals. And do you think that people either have too broad of goals or – a, a specific goal in mind, especially for the, the maximizers, what do you tend to see in terms of, of their goals? Well, I think what most people do is they will identify one or two things they care about. I mean, thinking about, think about buying a car. Uh, let's say you care about fuel efficiency and you care about reliability. Those, those are the things that matter most to you. The other stuff, you don't know what you think. So what you'll do is you'll say, okay, I want a high mileage car, uh, I mean a, a fuel efficient car that doesn't break down. And I'll, uh, I'll go and look at cars like that and let what's available in the marketplace tell me how I feel about other things, you know, like the nature of the upholstery, the styling, the sound system, and so on. So what happens, of course, is that you go out into the marketplace and you discover that there are 10, 50, 100 cars that are fuel efficient and reliable. And now you're going to let the marketplace tell, help you figure out what else you care about. And that's when people get themselves into trouble. So the advice I give people is, you know, this sort of joke, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> the first thing you should do when you're making a decision is sit down and ask yourself what matters. And if you can make a list, the more detailed, the better. Uh, the more easily you'll be able to find something that meets your that meets your goals. Most of us don't do that. It's hard to do. We're kind of lazy, and we figure I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. And again, in the world we live in, seeing it is just going to make you more confused, not more certain about what it is you want. Right. So yes, I think people are not good at formulating goals in a detailed enough way that they it, they'll actually help when the time comes to uh, make a decision. Now, do you have any advice for people that have problems formulating those goals, especially when it comes to choosing a career or job? Um, that's kind of a hard thing to sit down and and make that list of things that you're really trying to get yep. out of it. Because the one thing that people say is, "I just want to be happy at my job." And which is help, which is remarkably unhelpful. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have advice to give, but I think it's advice that anyone can give themselves, and it's much easier to say than it is to follow. And that is to make sure that you keep the main thing, the main thing. It's not enough to list all of the things that uh, that will be nice in a job, because you're not going to find a job that has all those things. So the question is, what's most important to you? And you have to be willing to go or, or reduce the set of possibilities so that everyone in every possibility in the set gives you what's most important to you. And after that, you can just sort of uh, use the other features of jobs as tiebreakers. So if it's really important to you to stay close to your family, you have a very close family, you don't want to be half a country away, so you decide, uh, I'm going to look for a job that's in the New York metropolitan area. 
Now, that doesn't restrict the choice set all that much, but it certainly is a narrower choice set than if you're looking anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world. So people have to ask themselves what's most important and then act in a way that's consistent with the values that they've articulated. As I say, this is obvious. Everyone knows this, but people tend not to do it. Yeah, I like what you were saying about the fact pick one and then kind of let the other things happen. And I know we keep harping on the job thing, but that's kind of what sparked this podcast was just trying to figure out the path and life and everything. So in terms of this conversation, it, it really makes a lot of sense. I don't know. I go back to the the quote that uh, a luxury once tasted becomes necessity, you know, and I feel like when you have a good thing going and then it goes away, you kind of you reminisce about the good times, only the good things, and you want that back, but you can't really get it. You know what I mean? Well, you said you said a couple of things in uh, there that that are all true. One is that losses really hurt. So if you have something and it gets taken away, that's much more painful than never having had it for most of us. And I think we make lots of decisions in life with an eye toward avoiding that feeling. The other thing is I don't think it's quite true that luxury once tasted, once tasted becomes necessity. But it's certainly true that luxury after a while becomes necessity. <laughs> okay, so good. So the trick, I think, and I actually say this in my book, uh, the trick is to make really extraordinary experiences rare. And to, to, just to give you an example of what I mean, suppose, you know, you're making a half a million dollars a year. So you can, you know, like to drink wine and you, you know, you're in an income bracket now where you can spend 30 or $40 a bottle on wine. What's going to happen after a while is that the 30 or $40 bottle of wine is going to taste just like the $8 wine tasted when you were getting your MBA. So you're now spending 10 times as much, but you're not getting any more satisfaction than you did as a, as a graduate student. However, if you, no matter what you can afford, if you make the really expensive, high quality wine a treat, it will remain a treat. So, you're, you know, you'll get more pleasure out of the occasional really fine bottle of wine than you'll get at when it becomes sort of your standard dinner accompaniment. I like so that. keeping really great experiences rare is a way to continue to derive satisfaction from having those experiences. Now that's tough, don't you think? Because yep. obviously the, the great experiences, you want to keep having them. So it's only natural to be like, oh, I'll just do it again. I'll just do it again. Yeah, but it's just, you know, it is an, just like a, close to an iron law of human beings that we adapt to things. So it's only natural to want to keep having that great experience again and again. The problem is it's going to stop feeling like a great experience. Right. You know, you're going to need a $70 bottle of wine and then a $100 bottle of wine, you know. Uh, and again, if you have infinite money, no harm. Although <laughs> it, may, it may seem a little weird to be spending quite so much money on a bottle of wine. But, <laughs> but most of us are not in that position. So the trick is to continue to get real pleasure out of these um, experiences. And the way to do that is to make them special. That, that's very interesting, especially with the current state of the economy for, for America right now, where there's a lot of people that are living well below the means that they were living before. Yep. And yep. I, I really wonder in terms of, of happiness, if they've been able to, to adjust. Right. And the answer to that, I think, 
at the moment is no, but if the if the downturn lasts long enough, I think people will most people will establish a new kind of baseline, a new kind of standard. They'll get used to living the way they currently are forced to live. And the upside of that is that these experiences that had been routine in their more affluent days and are now not routine will give them satisfaction again. You know, you take a huge salary hit and you go from buying uh, $40 wine to buying $10 wine. And five years from now, that $40 bottle of wine is really going to taste fabulous. What is your estimation Again. in terms of time, you know, how long this takes for somebody to to reach that point? Don't know the answer to that, and I don't think that it simply is a matter of individual psychology. No one is willing to say, none of the political leaders in this society are willing to say that this is the new normal. So we are being encouraged to think about the downturn as temporary, as something from which we will recover. And what that does, I suspect, is that it fights against, it, it gets people to fight against getting used to things as they currently are. So I don't think uh, I don't think we know how long it takes, and I don't think that the sort of surrounding culture is going to do anything to get us uh, sort of to to make peace with our current economic situation. And I should also point out that one of the we know two things about well the, what determines well-being that matter a lot. In, the, in connection with the downturn. One is that security is really important. And quite apart from the drop in standard of living, what has been threatened in the last few years for a lot of people is their sense of security, of predictability, that, uh, you know, that the big things in the future will be taken care of. Second is that unemployment is a disaster. It's a cycle, uh, apart from the financial consequences. It's a psychological disaster to lose your job. It's something people really don't recover from for a long, long time. Well, it might be nice for us to get used to the downturn so that we can once again get pleasure out of things that have just become necessities. On the other hand, the price for this downturn, the psychological price for this downturn for a lot of people is very substantial. One thing there that it makes me think of, and I know you discuss it in your book and and in your TED talk and everything is there's a kind of a middle ground, right? There's too little choice and too much choice. And yep. and in this same idea that we've been talking about of overindulgence versus, you know, underindulgence, I kind of compare it to three years ago, I was driving like a $30,000 car. Now I'm driving about a $3 car. And, <laughs> and, as nice as it would be to say, oh, you know, I, I'm cool with the car I drive now. I'm not. But but I, I won't mind driving, you know, somewhere in the middle, just a, just yep. a Civic or something in the future, you know. So kind of talk about that middle ground area, I guess. Right. Well, we don't know what the middle ground is for people, but what we do know is that is that what we define as the middle ground, each of us, has a lot to do with with the way in which we anchor our valuations. So if you're driving a heap right now, a car that a few years ago you wouldn't even have, you would have been caught dead in is now going to seem extravagant. Exactly. And and uh, and so the middle ground is going to be a Civic, but a few years ago the middle ground might have been a Lexus. So middle ground keeps moving, uh, you know, and each of us, uh, as a society we are not prepared to say well, you know, people need this, but they don't need that. 
So if they want that, that's their problem. We, we seem much more inclined to let each, each citizen decide for him or herself what's valuable and how valuable. That's why we like the market so much. Right. I don't mean the stock market. I mean the general market. <laughs> right. It's a way to let everybody get what they want, what they think is important. And we, are, we tend to be unwilling to look at somebody else and say, oh, your values are just completely misplaced. That's not worth value as you're giving it. You know, you're superficial, you're trivial, blah, blah, blah. We, we may think those thoughts, but we tend not to say them out loud. So there's no official idea in this country about what the middle ground is. And I think it would help a lot if there were. Right. But I, uh, I don't exactly know how to uh, get uh, public conversation started about how much is enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The marketing gurus of the world wouldn't enjoy that. That's right. Uh, and that's the other problem. Even if we got a conversation started, you've got, I don't know how many billions of dollars a year <laughs> spent trying to convince us that whatever we think is enough isn't. I have to dedicate some time to this and then we'll, we'll let you go. I know you got places to be, but in the final chapter of your book, you suggest some possible coping strategies. And I know we've kind of talked about them in terms of the have the luxuries come, you know, fewer and far between and setting goals. I need any amount of advice that you could possibly give to kind of move from maximizer to satisficer to look for things that will do rather than the perfect thing. I need I need the golden nugget right here. Yep. Well, the only advice that I have to give on that score is that nobody that I've ever met is a maximizer about everything. And what that means is that you are already satisficing when it comes to some decisions that you make. That's true. Uh, you may buy the store brand uh, paper towels. Mm -hmm. You don't give it a thought, whatever it is. So you already know how to satisfy. And the trick is simply to take a skill, a decision-making style that you already have and apply it in other areas of your life where you currently don't apply it. And the reason why this is important is that it's usually much, it is usually substantially harder to learn how to do a new thing than it is to, to transfer a skill you've already got to a new area. So everybody knows how to do it. Everyone knows how to settle for good enough. And the challenge is simply to take, scrutinize the parts of your life where good enough does the trick and then use the strategies that you use in those areas of your life in other areas of your life where you torture yourself. Right. Now, I don't want to make it seem like this is trivially easy to do. It isn't. And almost certainly, unless you're willing to be disciplined and stick with it, you'll be incredibly frustrated because you just know that if you spent another three days online, you'd find the perfect uh, toaster oven. If you force yourself to go through the discomfort of settling for good enough, one of the things you'll learn is that good enough is virtually always good enough. It'll get easier and easier to satisfy. You'll do it more and more often, and eventually it will become simply your decision-making habit. So, you know, again, I don't know that this advice will be helpful to people, but I would say the trick is to, is to scrutinize the decisions that you make where good enough is all you're looking for and then use that strategy in other areas of your life. Well, I, I love it I, because I know it's true. I, you know, I've done it. I've, I'm telling you, I've struggled over electronics, just picked one, and then it ends up working, and you don't give another yep. thought. 
And so that's why I knew I was like, I got to talk to him because I know this is true. And, you know, your book, again, The Paradox of Choice, incredible book. I recommend everybody to check it out. And your TED talk was fascinating. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and keep writing books because I want to keep reading them, I guess is what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very kind. All right, Barry. Well, thank you very much and uh, uh, best of luck to you in the future. Thanks. You too. Thanks so much, Barry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I know Chris and I both thoroughly enjoyed it. It was awesome. It was awesome. I I just wanted to let you guys know that next week we are going to be taking a little holiday vacation, and we won't be releasing an episode on Saturday. But we might try to squeeze something in there, either on the site, Twitter, or something like that, just to stay in touch with you guys. But, you know, look forward to something coming out the week after the holidays. Yeah, let's do something on the site. It'll, it'll be good. We'll do something. There was one thing I wanted to kind of discuss with you real quick. I know it's the outro. Who knows who even listens to the outro? But I, I want to encourage you guys to check out Barry on his TED Talk. It might be kind of redundant. I don't know. It's up to you, depending on how much you enjoyed it. But... There's one thing he goes into and he says, he gives this example of when parents go to a soccer game these days, they have their cell phone on one hip, their Blackberry on one hip, their laptop in their lap. And now you you have all of these choices on what you're going to do while you're at the soccer game. So are you going to watch your child play soccer? Are you going to talk on the phone, check your email on your Blackberry, do work on your laptop? So no longer are you free to just enjoy you have to make decisions while you're not even trying to make decisions you see what i'm saying like every second of the day you're deciding whether you want to do work because you can't you can do that now you watch tv you want to read you want to go for a walk do you want to eat healthier i mean it's a little it's a little too much i i completely agree it really is annoying especially with the work aspect you know, you see people go on vacation and they take their laptop, they take their BlackBerry, and they're still able to do work. So you're constantly faced with that decision of, should I respond to this email just so I have a little bit less work when I get back? And then, you know, you don't you don't get to really enjoy what you're doing in the moment. Yeah, and what he talks about in his book and, and in that talk is that even when you make a decision, so you, you decide, okay, I'm on vacation, I'm not going to do work. You think about the option of doing work, even though you've already decided it. So it, it, there's no escaping it. Oh, yeah. I mean, really. It, it, it ruins the vacation because you sit there and you second guess yourself and you're like, oh, should I have done work because, you know, my boss needed something or I don't want to head in on Monday and have four hours of emails to catch up with and I can knock some of this out. I'm getting angry. Oh, it's I'm, awful. I'm, I'm getting angry just thinking about it. Anyways. All right. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a little something. Make sure to use our Amazon widget. And even more importantly, we really need you guys to go on iTunes and rate us, leave a comment. It helps us with the rankings. It it really helps us out in terms of just getting our podcast out there, trying to get more listeners, just trying to spread the love a little bit. So if you could do that, iTunes, rate us, you know, the star thing and comment, just a quick comment. Really, really appreciate it. It could be our Christmas present. So thanks for listening. Uh, We will be skipping next week, as John mentioned, but keep an eye out for something coming out.
I was going to say, a cheap gift for somebody is giving them, you know, maybe a uh, CD or, or USB stick with a couple of our episodes on it. Have them Boom. check it out. See if they like it. You know, they might like you more. <laughs> I like it. Nice. Goodbye. Goodbye, Christopher. Goodbye. <sighs>